from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, episode 31, Godzilla vs. Megaguirus. and kaiju lovers and welcome to kaiju vision radio a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value i'm nathan marchand and i'm brian scherschel and this is an episode that brian's been looking forward to for quite a while we will be discussing 2000's godzilla versus megaguirus and the long title for it is godzilla x megaguirus the g annihilation strategy Getting a little retro there. It's kind of like the the longer title for Godzilla versus Gigan. Yeah, it is. <laughs> the Earth Destruction Directive. Yeah. So this is when the Millennium series is starting to get into full swing. So this is. I think we're going to have a very fun and interesting discussion with this one. Yes, we're getting into what I refer to as the Tezuka trilogy, which is these three movies that, including this one, that uh, are directed by Tezuka. Our related topic for this episode will be energy use and energy independence in Japan, and Prime Minister Mori's gaffe. All right, with that, Brian, uh, get us up to speed with our film description. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is an angry force of nature. He plagues Japan by attacking its major energy sources, most notably nuclear power plants, for sustenance. He battles Megaguirus for dominance. Megaguirus is the vicious and aggressive queen of the swarm of Meganula. They were brought to the present day via a time distortion caused by a black hole weapon called the Dimension Tide. They feed on Godzilla's energy. Major Kiriko Tsujimori is a vengeful yet dutiful JSDF soldier who joins the G-Graspers to avenge her CO who was killed by Godzilla. Hanjime Kudo, a snarky and excitable engineer, is recruited by the G-Graspers to complete work on the Dimension Tide. Motohigo Sugiura is the ambitious yet deceitful head of the Bureau of Science and Technology, who created a plasma generator and is now determined to kill Godzilla to protect his secrets. The brilliant professor Yoshino Yoshizawa creates the Dimension Tide because she too lost someone she loves in one of Godzilla's attacks. Jun Hayasaka is a curious schoolboy who witnesses the Dimension Tide test, but is sworn to secrecy by Tsujimura, and he later finds a Mega Nulon egg that he keeps secret. The kaiju and human plotlines are unified. Everything the humans do is centered on the monsters, whether that involves battling, tracking, or observing them. Both Godzilla and Megaguirus are problems. At the beginning of the movie, a troop of JSDF soldiers attack him with rocket launchers, but he's unaffected. The Japanese government bans nuclear power because it attracts Godzilla. June disposes of the egg he found in order to stop the progression of what would later become Megaguirus. Godzilla is lured to Kiganjima Island by F-15s and the Griffin, where the Dimension Tide is fired on him, but he survives. Later he emerges from Tokyo Bay and briefly engages the Griffin before Megaguirus appears. The G-Graspers attempt to lock onto Godzilla and Megaguirus with the Dimension Tide, but it malfunctions. One problem solves another. Godzilla battles Megaguirus, eventually killing her with his atomic breath. Afterward, Tsujimura flies the Griffin to help Kudo get a lock on Godzilla with the Dimension Tide before it burns up in the atmosphere. Both the Griffin and the Black Hole hit Godzilla, who disappears. 
The script by Heisei series veterans Hiroshi Kashiwabara and Wataru Mimura is a simple sci-fi thriller that tackles several pertinent themes and issues. The story has a laser focus and a small cast of fun characters. With a budget of 950 million yen, or about $8.3 million, special effects director Kenji Suzuki continued to use more digital effects to enhance the traditional tokusatsu techniques. This is best seen with Megaguirus, who is realized using marionettes and CGI, often by cutting quickly between them. The Godzilla design from the previous film was reused with several more CGI shots of him swimming underwater. Elsewhere, the film has ambitious miniature work, placing the camera on ground level within the models or showing the sets underwater. There is impressive green screen and rotoscoping throughout, particularly when Sujimura climbs onto Godzilla's back. Overall, the practical effects have aged better than the digital effects. This is a light film with plenty of humor, although it has potent moments of gravitas and even horror. With its over-the-top technology and 60s revivalist style, this is very much a fantasy film. The film is somewhat experimental because Megaguirus, while similar to Batra, is different from most of Godzilla's foes in that she is a metamorphosing dragonfly and attacks Godzilla with her swarm at first. It was also bold with the brief recreations of scenes from the 1954 original by digitally imposing the new Godzilla suit into the footage. It also has some ambitious set pieces. This film is an expansion of style because it breaks away from the Heisei series while reviving stylistic elements from the Showa series. The film created the standard style for the millennium era that would allow other entries to stand out. It introduces the trademark of featuring female leads and the millennium series anthology framework where each film is a standalone story in its own continuity, with one exception. With the reasonable success of Godzilla 2000, Toho began to work on a new film. Director Masaki Tezuka, who did not like the previous movie, sought to create what he thought was a truer Godzilla film. In light of this, the intended audience seemed to be hardcore Godzilla and kaiju fans. When released in Japan December 16, 2000, it grossed 1.2 billion yen, or roughly $10 million, selling approximately 1.35 million tickets. This made it the second lowest grossing entry in the Millennium series, and was the lowest ticket sales since 1975's Terror of Mechagodzilla. It premiered stateside in 2002 at the Pickwick Theater as part of G-Fest. It then aired on the Sci-Fi Channel in 2003 and was released by TriStar on DVD in 2004. It's received mixed reviews from fans. Aside from minor changes to the dialogue, the dubbed version is the same. There are several forces at play. The Bureau of Science and Technology is a branch of the Japanese government dedicated to finding alternative energy sources that won't attract Godzilla. It was timely since Japan was and is dealing with many issues related to energy production. After Godzilla's previous attacks, the G-Graspers are formed as the Bureau's military force to neutralize Godzilla should he appear again. Both Tsujimori and Yoshizawa have sworn revenge on Godzilla for killing loved ones, which motivates them to prevent this from happening to others. There are several themes touched upon throughout the film. In what might be an allusion to sexism, June asks Tsujimori why a woman would want to fight Godzilla. Later she tells him that it's because her CO told her, when you're afraid of something, you don't run from it, you fight it. Several characters keep secrets throughout the film, most notably Sugiura. He has hidden a plasma energy generator in Tokyo, which is why Godzilla keeps resurfacing. The truth is shown to be better than lies thanks to Jun and Sugiura's confessions, the former because it leads to helpful information, and the latter because of the damage his secrets caused. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. 
Part two of the podcast will be our opinion and discussion of the film we're covering this week. So, Brian, well, I mean, we've already talked about it a little bit. I know you love this one. We've been watching these movies chronologically, and I don't know about you, but I've been restricting the later movies all the time that we've been doing this whole podcast. As soon as we started doing the episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, like I restricted myself to watching only movies before it, not after. And so this has been a long time that I've been waiting to see this movie and, and the movies in the Millennial Series, period, really. Um, I'm so glad to be able to see this. Because I've been restricting myself, The there is a massive divide between this and just about every, everything before it just as far as style-wise and everything. I mean, going back to the Heisei series, this is very different from the Heisei films. Oh, yeah, it, it really is. We uh, also saw it at G-Fest. Yes, the, we were at G-Fest in 2017. They they do a film festival there every year, and this was one of the films that was screened. So The crowd was, responded pretty well. Yeah, it was, uh, and uh, they had uh, Oshima was there, so they wanted to show one of the movies that she had scored. Yes, and, and I had the uh, chance to be able to meet her, too, which was wonderful. And yeah. we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Yeah. But first, I want to talk about the previous movie that we did, which is Godzilla 2000 from 1999. And I concentrated quite a bit on Katagiri, that character, because he wants to kill Godzilla. And essentially, the movie makes him the bad guy largely just because of that. And I said, well... Wouldn't this guy be a hero to a lot of people, whether he's whether it's the people watching this movie or if you imagined you were a character living in Tokyo at the time, this guy would definitely be your hero because he wants to get rid of Godzilla. But this movie made him the villain. And I thought that's really odd because the heroes in this movie want to destroy Godzilla. And that's okay because that's normal. Part of it, we know, is that they won't succeed because it's Godzilla. He's always going to come back. Finally, we have a movie that's working right because if everybody in Tokyo acted the same way as that guy and his little girl, that would be a really, really weird world to live in. G. Grasper, a project that's been formed as a specific goal of eliminating Godzilla. But these people aren't jerks and they're not cast as villains either. And Yuriko Hoshi, the character she plays, literally says, when we've killed Godzilla, not a trace of him will remain. But yet she's awesome. She's not evil. (laughs) This makes the 1999 movie more of an anomaly. It's like someone listened to what I said in the previous episode and and addressed all those concerns with this movie that we're doing now. But it's because we were literally rooting for the humans to succeed in this movie. Weren't you? I mean, you can have it both ways. Yeah, you You can can. have it both ways. You can have our heroes and their desire to kill Godzilla isn't something that we should be like, oh, no, that's that's just wrong. (laughs) What are you thinking? Well, their job is to defend Japan, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Well, there's nothing wrong with that. What's evil about that? So at least everything's working right in this movie from that perspective, right? Because... you know, wanting Godzilla to be defeated for you know by our heroes, you can be a Godzilla fan and you can still root for the people in this movie. Yeah, there's 
part of it is because the, they don't bother with the 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 dilemma of oh scientific knowledge versus safety. Well, it, <laughs> yeah. it's because it's a false dilemma. Yeah, <laughs> really. The, and our our characters even get to bask for five minutes or less in their victory over Godzilla. But we know Godzilla's going to come back. It's Godzilla. It's fine. We're fine now. But you get why I thought this previous movie was weird. Yes. I was like, wait a minute. This Anyway, you get, you get my point. One thing I read also was that Okawara, he wasn't really that into Godzilla. Okawara meaning the director of Godzilla 2000. And several of the Heisei movies. Uh-huh. The thing is now, though, I don't have as many issues with these movies anymore. The screenplays are better. The stories are better. And so many issues with the 1990s movies have been resolved. These movies are much more cinematic. Sure, there is some criticism about some of these movies in the Millennial series. Oh, they're too simple. Well, at least they're not convoluted and complicated. But I'm so glad Tezuka made this movie. I, he really seems to know what he was doing. The story is like a breath of fresh air compared to the stories that we've had for weeks. Because we're releasing these episodes weekly. We've been doing these Heisei movies hardcore for a while. Yes. <laughs> uh, the cinematography, it makes so much more sense. It's like they know what to show us on the screen at all times. And it feels like a movie. The characters are more fleshed out. They're more sensible. Their motivations are crystal clear in this one. And I can, most importantly, I can, sus- I can suspend my disbelief with these movies. I have a much easier time suspending my disbelief, just like I did during most of the Showa series. I can suspend my disbelief just fine. And that's important. When you're making a movie, you need to have the audience be able to suspend their disbelief. And after the first five minutes of this movie, I was so into it. And definitely, this is my favorite Godzilla movie since Return of Godzilla in 1984. Lastly, this script, I didn't feel like that there's something horribly wrong while I'm watching this movie. In the same sense that when someone feels sick, they're like, man, I need to go to the doctor. But this script, if somebody printed it out for me and I read it, I'd be like, oh, okay. I wouldn't want to cut 25% of it because it's all progressing and it's, and the pacing is pretty good too. But I, I call this the sort of mainstream millennium trilogy. This and Godzilla against Mechagodzilla and Godzilla Tokyo SOS. They're made in very similar ways. They have the same music. They have a lot of the exact same style and the same look. All, all three of them do. Yeah, those three are essentially the standard bearers for the Millennium series, which is why some of the other entries are able to stand out as being as different as they are. Whereas with with the Heisei movies, especially after, you, after Return of Godzilla, they feel very similar. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they feel the they style. feel very uniform. Yeah. And but when you look back on the Showa era, I mean that was 20 years, 15 movies and a lot of them because of the length of time or the, because of the span of time that they were made, there there's a lot of different flavors yes. to them. So there's a big breadth and even though the Millennium series was only around for about 5 years, there is a little bit of breadth to them as well. Two big changes 
from in this style compared to previous entries is that there's no longer the blatant copying of American movies. We've really come off of that now. Yeah. <laughs> it's really coming into its own. It's not really referencing anything. Another thing that Tezuka wanted to change when he made these movies is he wanted to have more third act involvement of the human characters. And when I read that, I thought, you know, I, all this other stuff with the Heisei movies, I, I actually had forgotten about that is that there really isn't in a lot of them much of stuff going on with the humans in the third act. A lot of it's like a long monster fight, really, right? Yeah, Yeah. that's what usually happens with it. I mean, Uh, some of them, they get a little bit of something to do toward the end, but for the most part, yeah, they they become spectators. Uh Yeah, and they're they're in the control room. (laughs) Those wonderful little control rooms. They're in the control room and the TV room, and they're lounging around and they're I mean I guess technically we have watching a con- everything happen on the big screen. Yeah, I guess technically we have a control room in this one too, but we also have characters on the ground doing Well, and the things. control room is actually controlling something. Yeah. That's good. That too. And they're actually doing stuff. Like that first yeah. scene when we go to G Grasper headquarters, which that scene cracks me up because I feel like it's it's like the beginning of Men in Black when they yeah. when they're ta- when agent uh, maybe there's uh, maybe there's a little bit of mimicking there, but when they uh, when Tommy Lee Jones takes Will Smith down there and there's the and it's just like this one vestibule room with this quirky guy who's just sitting there. He's not really doing anything. It's like mm-hmm. so he's guarding the place. So they have the old soldier who greets him there. But anyway, and he says, oh, yeah, we have three divisions. These people do this. These people do that. These people do this. We all work together and then we make stuff happen. Yeah, it's it's a nice, simple layout instead of just up. Oh, this is the control room. This is where we are. Before we continue on, Brian, since we're talking a lot about things that we've said in previous episodes, I want to throw this at you. You've said before you're not a huge fan of revenge stories. Does it bother you that this is also a revenge story? The overall thing is about getting rid of Godzilla. And various people want Godzilla to be gone for various reasons. But really, the revenge part, it boils down to the destruction that Godzilla caused. Rather than, I think that makes it different than some of the other revenge plots that we have in movies where we have one main villain who is entirely motivated by revenge. Because Godzilla is running around killing people and crushing people in buildings a lot, in, in the, in, you know, especially in the past, because it gives us a nice backstory with lots of Godzilla destruction, it doesn't make a revenge motivation seem out of place at all. Because you're undoubtedly going to lose friends and you're going to lose relatives. So I think that makes more sense. Rather than just they're driven by blind hate. Instead, they're more part of a larger project that they channel their motivation through. Does it also help that these characters have more going for them besides the revenge angle? Definitely. Because with Kiriko... The revenge is a big part of her character, but we see other facets of her as well. You know, she's 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 not some yeah. cardboard cutout revenge character. Yeah, she goes. Yeah, she's nice. Yeah. She's nice to Jun. She tolerates <laughs> Kudo. Yeah, she has the, yeah, she has the <laughs> insulting back and forth thing with him. Yeah, yeah. So we get to see different sides of her. So that certainly helps. And yeah. It's her uh, motivation. It's not her whole character. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, the professor Yoshizawa, 
it's barely that part is barely even touched upon. But it's implied she lost a whole bunch of coworkers. Yeah, at least. and that's why she uh, sort of working on the dimension tide. Right. So, so since it's not that talk, it's not talked about very much, and it's focused more on her developing this weapon and trying to make it work. Yeah, there, there's more for her to do other than yeah. say, oh, "Damn Godzilla, I will kill him." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's, if she was doing that, the whole movie gets tired. Yeah. Let's go on to the music. This music helps this movie and it, it, the way it would help any Godzilla movie, which is incredibly a lot. I'm going to throw this out here right now, and I am sure you will agree with me, Brian. Miss Oshima's score in this movie and in the subsequent movies that she does, particularly her theme for Godzilla, I would rank that up there with anything by Afukabe. I think she's second, maybe only to Ikufube. Yeah. Although I'm, maybe she ties with Sato. Yeah, I was to say, there are certain composers who have worked on Godzilla movies who, because of the number of them they, that they've done, they've contributed a lot. Fukube definitely qualifies as that. Sato would probably be uh, there as well. Then there are certain movies that had these one-off composers where the, the score for that particular movie is really good. But my goodness... Oshima, she nailed it. Yes, gone are the days of voice-cracking brass instruments, and instead we are treated to these awesome trumpet solos. And the the music is you know, with a using a pretty much Western-style orchestra, but I feel like there are Eastern influences in a lot of the melodies, especially with the next film that that she does the music for in two thousand two. But the the Godzilla theme with the drums that is so fitting, and it just puts you in the mood. To see Godzilla. I remember you told me that, because you went to her panel at G-Fest last year. There were a lot of people there. Yes. And, and you said the one of the things that someone asked her is if she had ever listened to any of the soundtracks to the previous movies. And, and she, she said no. And she said no. But the thing that fascinates me about that is, despite having not listened to them, she seemed to inherently understand certain things that you put into Godzilla music, which is that... One of the one of Fukabe's trademarks was that he was uh, bombastic, and you her theme for Godzilla in this is most certainly bombastic. It feels large and imposing, and it's wonderful. It's not quite a march like like a Fukabe would do, but you definitely get a sense of size and power. And when I met her, uh, I asked her what some of her biggest influences were, and she gave me the names of two people: Tchaikovsky and. Bernstein, which is, I was like, oh my gosh, that's that's perfect. <laughs> I don't know if I was amazed when she said that she hadn't listened to the Ikafube, but that's something I would almost ask somebody not to do, because you just you don't want like just a reproduction of that. You want something that's more original, and you want to start from the ground up rather than telling a composer, oh no, you have to. Here's a, here's the box that you can't that you have to stay in, you know. It's, it's way better to make something original. And she absolutely hit it out of the park. And she's composed a lot. But yeah, she's she done really a lot of stuff. It. She's done stuff for anime and video games. I'm actually familiar with some of her uh, with some of her work in anime because well, I know one of the titles that they mentioned for her uh, for her anime work was Full Metal Alchemist, mm. which is one of my all time favorite animes. It is incredible. And it's funny, my brother was watching a bit of it on Netflix, and I was trying to pay attention to the score, see if I could pick up on it. And I'm pretty sure that I was hearing a little bit of it. 
one influence that Oshima did get uh, that was put into this music just for this movie was the the string instruments when we're looking uh, at the swarm that is uh, start that's on the wall of that building in Shibuya that she said that it was based on uh, the string music from Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. I thought that was awesome because I'm a big Hitchcock fan. Oh, I'm sure that definitely made you happy. And it actually, when I think about it, it, it actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I'm also uh, talking about the music. I, I think this is about the movie where they really solidify their tradition of recycle not recycling, but reusing Ifuka Bay's theme for Godzilla. But they always try to make sure they place it in just the right spot. For creation of effect for uh, the especially the fans yeah the it's like yeah. A, it's a little fan moment and i think it's a nice little homage because we've seen that in a, a lot of these new post showa movies if a fukube didn't score them they would still use one piece of music yeah because his godzilla theme yeah because what's godzilla without the the theme music yeah yeah it's because there's just certain composers the the work they do on films it's hard to separate them from those there's one actor in this movie who is has a very prolific film career, and that would be Masato Ibu. Now, just looking at him, you can tell that he is a pretty good actor. He looks like a veteran. He looks like a veteran Japanese actor. He has a presence. He was in a lot of movies. And that one scene, though, isn't he lying to the prime minister? On the phone. He says sorry. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So he, he was lying to the prime minister. And oh, like, that's not good. That he, that he had stopped oh. that project with the plasma energy. That's... <laughs> so, and but then he I, smashes the chess set. <laughs> yeah. And I was... I don't think I noticed that. But since we've seen Shin Godzilla so much, we and we heard the word sorry so much, and then I heard it in this phone call, and I was like, oh... That's the prime minister he was lying to. That's pretty funny. <laughs> that scene at one thirteen twenty eight in the movie, where we have Professor Yoshizawa and we have Major Tsujimori, and they are talking about why Godzilla is coming to Tokyo, and he's right there, Sugira. Yeah, he's right there, sitting at the desk, and he's looking straight ahead. And he's just smoking. Yeah, I remember this. <laughs> they, they include him in the shot. And he's just, hmm, mind my own business. But just even in that, though, he does an incredible job. You have to be able to hit that tone right for something like that to work. And it, and it did work because we, it, when we were seeing it at Pickwick Theater, the, there was a lot of laughter in the audience. Because yes. <laughs> there are a couple more scenes that are like this. Yeah. Where he's just in the background and he's... Standing, sitting at the desk or whatever, and he's just smoking. <laughs> and, uh, but it, he does a great job with his character. I mean, everybody does a good job with their character in this movie. I like all the characters in this movie, honestly. Their, their, their line delivery is, is good. They seem more into it than a number of movies we've seen so far lately here. Also, Yuriko Hoshi's character, which she played characters in Mothra vs. Godzilla, 
And she the, was the photographer. Yes, and the first Ghidorah film. Yeah, I think she was a reporter in that one, if I remember correctly. Yeah, totally different characters. She gets a good character. Yeah, she well, gets to say things and do things. Uh-huh. What I thought was was pretty amusing is when, when we saw this at G Fest. Normally, the the crowds there they would cheer whenever the each of the monsters would appear for the first time. Yeah, you know? she got her own. Applause. She got her own applause. I yeah. think she was the only actor. In all the movies that we saw at G-Fest, where one of the actors got applause when mm-hmm. she first appeared, yeah. which should tell you something. <laughs> Not since Yoshio Tsuchiya came back for the the Ghidorah film from 91, I, I don't think there's been a character that's been so good since the Shindo character, because he did a great job as a Shindo character. It was awesome. But I think she's the next, her character is the next, like, greatest one so far that we've had, where we have a show a series character coming back, or actor coming back. I also really like the Kudo character. He's just great. And being a Cubs fan, I yes. like him even more. Because <laughs> I've been a Cubs fan ever since childhood, as long as I can remember. So. That just made me be so happy when he that one scene where he was wearing the Cubs hat because I think it had been pretty well implied he liked baseball, but then he turns out he's a Cubs fan. Yes, <laughs> I think he's my favorite character in this movie. Honestly, I, I love how flippant and snarky and even kind of jaded that he is. Yeah, it, it, it's a good character. It's well crafted. It's it has been thought out. It it makes sense. He his he delivers really well. He he delivers his lines really well. He has he has attitude and he's into it. Everybody, anybody, and all of these characters, all of the actors seem like they're just really into it. And and I know he's the kind kind of the comic relief character in this movie, but he doesn't come across as being the obvious comic relief character. Nor is he obnoxious. No, yeah, there are lines that have comic relief, and there are moments that have comic relief, but we don't have characters that have comic relief, save the two sewer uh, workers, our, our water maintenance, whatever, yeah. guys. <laughs> Which, that's, they're just in there for comic relief for a tiny little bit, twice. And, and that's, that's normal. But we, no, we don't have major characters that just serve as comedy comic relief or, or anything like that yeah i love that he apparently invented nintendo Mies because he has those that little nurse avatar that is his yeah. anti-virus program yeah. and then later she his little avatar is uh cosplaying the major mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> i'm like you know this is subtly lending a little bit of legitimacy to her little joke at the end of the movie is like, oh, do you have a crush on me or something? I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm starting to wonder. <laughs> yeah, and that's another thing. You have the characters interacting with each other, which is rather than just this character does this, that character does that little compartmentalized thing. The, it, there's a sense that these people are working on a project and therefore there's interpersonal stuff going back and forth. Although I just now realized... He missed a really great opportunity to make uh, for some jokes because his last name was Kudo. He could have started talking about giving people kudos, <laughs> which would have been great. And also, this guy, this guy speaks what I know for you is your favorite line of the movie, although it exists only in the dub. <laughs> I was disappointed when we saw the Blu-ray at uh, G Fest. 
the line that he has about making Godzilla disappear up his own butthole. That, that, <laughs> yeah. It was in the subtitles, but it, it disappeared in the Japanese version subtitles on the Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah. It's in the dub, and I think the, the original DVD edition, it, it got subtitled like that, but the Blu-ray, I think, tried to be truer to the original line, which is just... He's telling the major, why are you working out when we're going to make Godzilla disappear in a black hole? And mm. the dub was, we're going to make Godzilla disappear up his own butthole. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, but the thing is, it's like, why? That's actually one of the rare instances where the dub is better. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's probably the Hong Kong guys, but it's like, nice job. You got something right once. Because <laughs> this actually, that line actually makes a heck of a lot more sense. Well, it is something you'd say if you were in a weight room and it was just two people talking. It made it actually made sense. And at one hour, 12 minutes and 56 seconds into the movie, there's a part where there's this pretty large crowd that's running away from all of the disaster that is happening in Tokyo. And along with all of those people are our two water maintenance guys who we've figured out was actually a, a, a comedy duo which we've seen that before quite a bit, uh, most notably in um, Ghidorah from uh, 1964. But the fatter one is behind further, and the thinner one is ahead. And as the fatter guy catches up to the thinner one, the thinner one says, hey, where do you think you're going? And this wasn't in the subtitles on the DVD, which really threw me off. I really wanted to know what they were saying. And the point of the comedy is is that he's criticizing him for doing the same thing that he is. So because they're both trying to escape all of this. But it was something I really wanted to know because you want to know what everybody's saying when the movie's showing something, obviously. Continuing on with characters, this professor, you know, <laughs> not not her, but the, the <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? Oh yes. This the the, the token the, professor who knows everything about prehistoric animals <laughs> magically. It's like, did you have a time machine and go see all of this? Because he just knows everything. Well, he, he comes in just at the right times. He's he's like a serious version of the president of the UFO club from yeah. the first Gitara movie. Uh, and he, he shows up at absolutely the right places and he delivers these he gives us these ominous monologues, mini monologues about the, the danger of Megaguerus. <laughs> and it's really amusing actually. And, and he, he del his delivery was so good that I was like, just, uh, I, I was partially engaged about Megaguerus, but at the same time I was like, yeah, this guy's pretty good. They knew how to strike the tone right there. All he was missing was the children's book to illustrate everything. <laughs> or the, the prop from, Battle in outer, battle in outer space in his office. Yes. <laughs> the major is a, a landmark character because we. This is the first one out of the Godzilla series that we have a strong woman character that's either the main character or very central character. Yeah, they tried to do that with Mickey Sagusa, but it never quite got there. She was never a central character. Yeah, she was a constant ancillary character, but she didn't have much to do, unfortunately. But this, the major, has a lot to do with the movie. We see her in the opening scene, and her motive. We give we get her motivation yeah, for revenge. She, she is front and center and from the tough. go, from the get go. And she's tough. Yeah, really tough. Also, June. 
our our little character, <laughs> our ne- our next Godzilla kid, who thank God is not a Kenny. <laughs> no, he's the like total opposite of a Kenny. I really <laughs> like him. He he may be the least annoying child in any Godzilla movie ever. Like the kid from uh, All Monsters Attack, he wasn't annoying either. No, but this, in the Japanese version, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, definitely. But this, he has stuff to do too. He's like, like he has the, a pretty integral part of the plot. He's the anti Roxanne. <laughs> yes, he is. Yeah, but I feel like they finally did a did a, a, a little kid right. The last one, there are a lot of complaints about the little girl being annoying, but she's weird. Definitely weird. Definitely weird. <laughs> but this is this kid seems really normal. I, what do you get about the part of them never seeing his father? I don't know what to think about that. I thought it was like a, a like maybe a, a running joke slash social commentary about the about fathers being too busy. That's what I took it as. And she's like has the phone out and everything as they're running. She's like I can never reach him. Where For some odd reason, the uh, my my first thought was well then maybe him and the kid from All Monsters Attack should hang out. And then I thought oh wait. How ironic would it be if in this continuity, he's he's the son of that kid? <laughs> I love how after Megagirus eats our two young people, and then it cuts to June looking out the window. I want to say, like, for a line from him, like, wow, that thing just ate both of those people. I'm never going to be the same again for the rest of my life. <laughs> but that was pretty cool. <laughs> But it has him just looking out the window, and I thought, wait, did the kid just see that? (laughs) Speaking of that, we also see victims in this movie. Victims of Megaguirus, Mm -hmm. victims of Godzilla. And it intensifies the gravity of the movie when the flooding is going on. Mm -hmm. And it has people being rescued and all this. It's part of the Godzilla phenomenon really is that i mean we're going all the way back to the first movie and did you get the same impression i did when they when they showed the flashback for yoshizawa and you're seeing some of her co-workers dying in that lab did you think of 2014 when that was going on yeah that opening scene in 2014 it was the energy lab uh-huh that she was at that was being destroyed and so yeah yeah it, it recalled the the 2014 yeah. scene it of, makes uh, me wonder yeah it makes me wonder if gareth edwards watched this movie i would hope that he did <laughs> for his sake <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh but to backtrack a little bit about jun something i really appreciated about him is the kid once he realizes that megagiris is Related to the egg that he found, he doesn't waste any time and he calls up the G graspers and says, it's my fault. I'm sorry. I found this egg. The scene between him and the major is really good. It is. It it totally gels and I can keep my suspension of disbelief suspended. It's like really authentic, too. Yeah, I'm just like I said, I'm just like he was a smart kid and he didn't waste he didn't waste any time. And he took responsibility and he took responsibility, mm-hmm. even though the major tells him. It's not really your fault. It would have happened eventually. Yeah. It was so you found it. Whatever. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Was, we we accidentally uh, caused it to begin with, kids. So it's <laughs> yeah. Really, you're, we need to take responsibility more than you do <laughs> with our uh, weapon. Let's talk about the weapon. Oh my god. Because I love <laughs> I love this weapon. It totally oh. fits into the Godzilla world. It's so outlandish that. <laughs> 
you're you almost don't even want to ask any more questions. I know. I just, and there's not. Oh my gosh. And and there's not 15 minutes of expository dialogue or or uh, pseudo scientific jargon thrown in to explain dimension tide either. Which I'm very grateful that that didn't happen. Thank oh you. Oh my gosh. It's just. I have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with the Dimension Tide. On the one hand, I love the absurdity of it. It's just, it's just like someone was just sitting around and said, okay, we need a, we need to come up with some sort of a weapon to kill Godzilla. How about a black hole gun? I mean, it just sounds well, like some silly thing someone would say. Isn't it related to the Hadron Collider and black hole, like actual black hole subatomic research? Kind of stuff. I, I can that, see how that could be an inspiration for I that. I mean, I always know the joke that about like one of these colliders is eventually going to create a black hole and we're going to get sucked into it. Yeah, yeah. See, but, see, and that's I, it, maybe it's related to that. I know, and you know, I've played some video games that that had smaller versions of weapons like this. Like there, there was a Mega Man game where one of the special weapons you could acquire was essentially a, a tiny black hole that you could fire, and it would suck all the enemies in. But on the but. I was just like, but on the other hand, every time they use it, all I keep thinking is, that's not how a black hole works. <laughs> no. It's like, it's like, oh, it didn't kill Godzilla because we missed. I'm like, it's a black hole. It's like that. It's like the you know, that little saying about how you know, almost only counts in horseshoes, hand grenades, and nuclear warfare. <laughs> Close is probably going to be effective. It's a black hole. <laughs> it's just. I don't know. It just, but it's its own system, though. I know it totally makes its own rules and actually follows its. Yeah, own rules. I will give it credit That's for that. I give I, credit yeah, for. I will you give it credit that for that. It invents its own rules and it sticks to those rules. It's just for some odd reason, I don't know what it is with this particular thing, but I keep wanting more than a lot of the other ridiculous pseudo scientific weapons that we've seen in these movies. I don't know why I feel like I have to apply more real world logic to this. Maybe it's because it is just so absurd. You shouldn't because it's so <laughs> absurd that you, that's like a signal to the audience people. This is really just total an, an invention and it's, and the thing dies at the end. So you yeah. know, it's not going to be brought back. I, I think, and it's not going to be like the, the all you know the, the all these cannons and, and all the radar interference stuff that's been used in these the, the Maser cannons eventually too. But like this, when you consider all of the weapons that they've used previously, this still seems the most outlandish one. But it's, but like I said, it's it's so outlandish that you just go with it. Yeah, it's it's probably the most comic booky thing I've seen in a Godzilla movie. Cause I've seen some absurd weapons in comic books. Some of which don't even really get explained. They just say, Oh, it does this, <laughs> but it's just, wow. It, it, it's just so crazy. And I think the moment when they introduce it is a turning point for the movie because before this, it seemed, it seemed fairly grounded. It, it made sense in a kind of a funny sort of world world sort of sense. And then as soon as someone says black hole gun, it's like it goes into a whole other level at that point. It becomes a whole other movie. Well, at that point, it's, it's it makes it more like a Godzilla movie. This has the same feel as a lot of Godzilla movies that are my favorites. The the, the part where they demonstrate it and they show all the the destruction with with the building that they have as the D, as the test for this, which looks a lot like that footage that people love to show of those nuclear tests yeah. with the fake town. Yeah, that's what it's recalling. Yeah. And it, I just, I love that scene. 
and and everybody gets their goggles on and and Eureka Hoshi's like, oh yeah, we're gonna kill this bastard. <laughs> we're gonna kill Godzilla, everybody. <laughs> or at least make him disappear. I mean, <laughs> well, not a trace of him will remain. Yes. That's what she says. Yes. Although I did have a, I had a really funny thought uh, attached to that because someone. Someone makes a comment uh, at some point during the movie. Oh, it was toward the end when the major goes to find Kudo again. Says, "Oh, we need you to come back and help us because we're we're getting weird seismic activity." It's like, "Oh, you think it's Godzilla?" It's like, we're, "We just want to make sure he didn't escape from the black hole." It's like, "No, no, 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 no." You you should know by now that when Godzilla I- I escapes from a black hole, he turns into space Godzilla with the giant crystals. I mean, that, this is how this works. <laughs> <laughs> So what they really did is they created Space Godzilla in this universe. <laughs> this movie also starts to do a lot more with depicting the military as heroic defenders. Like this is front and center, a lot more focused on the military. And it fits with with our general track between the first Godzilla movie to the present of an increasing amount of faith in, in the military. It's an important distinction to make because we have so many characters that are part of the G. Grasper Force, uh, which is essentially its own little paramilitary group. I know the G. Graspers are essentially kind of a newfangled version of G. Force from the 90s movies, although I would say they're probably more effective. And I got to say, I kind of want their uniforms. I like Those their are uniforms. Nice. Yeah. And I like the hats. Mm-hmm. If I could at least get a G. Grasper hat, yeah, that would be really cool. The jacket would be even better. Yeah, it's nice. But yeah, they've got some snazzy uniforms. And I like their ship. I know a lot of people kind of poke fun at the Griffin, but I, I like their ship. I actually don't mind this. I had problems with the, our vehicles starting The Garuda, the Super Xs. Yeah, 84, they started doing this. You know what? They had a launch sequence for the Griffin, and it doesn't go on forever. <laughs> And they only show parts of it at a time a lot of the time, which is very important. So you don't just have us staring at the whole thing like, oh, there it sits. But I like this one. This is like the first vehicle that I actually have no problem with in this series. (laughs) (laughs) It also doesn't have extremely ridiculous guns on it. Yes, that was very much a 90s thing. Yeah. The ridiculous guns. Trust me, I've seen enough comic books and cartoons and other sorts of media from the 90s. Giant guns were a thing. Yes, this vehicle is scaled down quite a bit in in the amount of power it has. It's no no longer this apocalyptic level of power (laughs) is given to a mobile vehicle. (laughs) I've also heard some people compare the the G-Graspers and their vehicles in this to... The, the science patrol from Ultraman, which mm. definitely seems like an influence because there was a there were at this point there was a resurgence in popularity for for Ultraman because they were producing some newer Ultraman shows that had become really popular. Like Ultraman Tiga was around this time. So I'm not surprised at all that they would integrate some elements of that into this film. A lot of these Godzilla films feature cool architecture and they they center on some of the most interesting buildings like Tokyo Tower has been frequently in a lot of these movies frequently appears yes <laughs> and in a lot of non-Godzilla movies as well as in King Kong Escapes and Gamma Guardian of the Universe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in this one we have a Shibuya 109 and that is the uh, shopping mall 
that's in uh, Shibuya. There's a lot of Shibuya in this movie. A lot of it's centered in that part of uh, of, of uh, Tokyo instead of Chiyoda, which Chiyoda has been heavily uh, depicted in Godzilla movies, but Shibuya not as much. But it reminds me of a lot of Times Square has a lot of the atmosphere. There's always something going on, lots of people, busyness. They've probably seen everything. Which is probably why those uh, why those kids are so jaded that when they when they say oh it's not magic it's tiny robots and eh, they don't care <laughs> yeah right at the beginning they they have our G Grasper people walking to to meet him and there's all this music in the background and it acts like it's really a happening place which it is another part of the architecture though is at where we have our our battle our monster battle takes place and it's out in the port near the port area. Uh, of uh, Tokyo Bay, and one of the prominent buildings there is the Fuji TV building, and it has that's the one that has that round structure mm-hmm. up there, which is really distinctive, and it was designed by a very prominent architect too, and so that's that was featured pretty prominently there, but also the Grand Nico Tokyo Daiba, which is a hotel luxury hotel that's there, and that's the building that. Godzilla uses his atomic breath and he cuts off oh, yes. the building like horizontally yes. and then the top of it falls down. Yeah, that was a that was some great model work there. Yeah. There's another building that it had it's the one with that yellow pyramid yeah. structure that looks like it's made out of wood. Yeah. And and, and uh Megaguris knocks it off and, and makes it land on Godzilla. After that nice little close up of her CGI smirk. Yes. <laughs> and that's a that's a building that I have not found on Google Earth or anywhere else. It's I know, supposed I to be right what, there diagonally, just a little bit away from the Fuji TV. I want to know what that building is because it's the most probably the most interesting building I've seen in any of these movies in a long time. This area, there were. Did you read how there were a lot of plans for building up that area? Oh, really? Yeah, that, and, that would probably and, and a that lot would of explain those, it. Yeah, and a lot of those things fell through. That they, ah. that they were planning on building. And I thought, okay, well, maybe this is one of the structures that had been planned. Maybe and even was still going to be built. Yeah. Maybe, later. yeah, like maybe they someone anticipated something that got canceled. Yeah. Maybe someone said submitted a plan for a potential building and somebody in, on the special effects team saw it and thought, hey, let's use this in our movie. Yeah. Let's put that in there too with all everything else. And then the Ferris wheel is just down the street practically from the Fuji TV building as well, because it's, it's not a very large area that, that, that the battle takes place on, but the Ferris wheel is there too. And and there's a shopping mall right by that. The building that has the plasma generator inside it, that Godzilla destroys at the end, uh-huh. that building just looks cool. It does. <laughs> it looks like something that you'd be like, Oh yes, Godzilla needs to destroy that as a, <laughs> have it come have it come apart in all those little pieces like that yeah th- like i said the model work in this is is really good i liked it and did you notice that in the 1966 flashback that we have that godzilla attacks the tokai nuclear power plant yes which we talked about in the last episode <laughs> yes where that's where our nuclear accident occurred <laughs> since we're talking a bit about uh, the monster battle in this this was an interesting one uh, it's a very different sort of battle uh, I'm sure Tom Kitagawa was spending a lot of time working with that the Megaguirus marionette and then also having to uh, film scenes where they're going to add Megaguirus in with CGI. So, Because that, that's what makes Megaguirus 
different, I think, than a lot of the other monsters that we've seen before, because we're seeing this trend of using more digital effects in these movies. Some work better than others, I will say. The There are points where they actually solve the old wing problem that a lot of these movies have, where the, the monsters just kind of hover and the wings don't look very good. That was really a problem in the Heisei movies. Uh, but it's only in the scenes where Megagirus is CGI and she's flapping the wings really hard. Yeah. Otherwise, the the marionette, they're kind of going back to the old way of doing things, so you kind of have to forgive it for that. But the thing that, beyond just the, the coordination and, and uh, that they had to do to make all of these shots work, I have to say, this stylistically is one of the most interesting fights I've seen, I think I think we've seen in these movies so far because definitely t- in a long time. Yeah, because Tezuka really likes slow-mo. And then there are also points where it looks like he speeds the film up a little bit. Like when Godzilla comes out of the debris from that building you were talking about and he rattles his head. Mm-hmm. It looks like the film actually sped up for a second when that was going on. So probably because you could only move the the suit so the much. Suit. Yeah. yeah. So that was it was a little little jarring at first. I have to I was like, whoa, that came out of there. But he really loves slow-mo. I noticed yeah, I, in this. I noticed how the, the slow-mo kind of accentuated. Accentuated a lot of yeah. things. The first time we see it is when he's making eye contact with Kiriko on the island after their first attempt with the with the dimension tide. Mm-hmm. Then we see it a couple of times during this battle, and I think actually works pretty effectively for uh, for the most part. I think my favorite one, when you get to the end of the battle and Godzilla's a bit dizzy, and Megagirus is, instead of trying to stab him in the crotch <laughs> with the stinger, which I'm sure that hurt, and he's uh, she's trying to hit him in the face. Yeah. And then you have this moment where the stinger makes contact, and you can you're seeing the camera's position kind of behind and to the side of Godzilla's head, so you you don't know what exactly is going on, and the there's the music cuts out and. The stinger makes contact with his face and the camera comes around and you that's when you see that Godzilla had caught the stinger in his mouth. Yeah, and bites it off. And then bites it off. And it's this 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 epic moment, I have to say, because that's when the tide completely turns and then Megagirus dies five seconds later because Godzilla yeah. blasts her. Yeah, these are cinematic moments. Yeah, there's a lot of those in this, particularly with the monsters. You were talking about this how this, more feel, this feels more overall, cinematic. It feels more like a movie. Yeah, I was lot. really, I was really noticing this compared to the last several movies that we've been uh, we've been talking about. <laughs> the part where Megagirus comes out from the water, and then the the fast wing movement and all the destruction, and then Megagirus like starts flying right towards him. And then what? Kudo gets injured and he blacks out and then he wakes up all of a sudden in the hospital bed. That's how you do a cinematic moment is you have our, your character get knocked out and then there's a little bit of a break, tiny little break. And then we come to him coming to his senses. That's another thing that movies do. I have to admit that when I saw that scene, I half ex- I was thinking, I half expect someone to come over and say, it was all a dream. <laughs> that whole attack, Megagira showing up, everything, oh, all a dream. <laughs> but no, it 
I, th- that's one of the things that Tezuka took risks in this movie. I think he wanted to try new things, these stylistic things. I have to commend him for it because it, it really, like as we said before, you know, it, it really elevates this movie above what had come before it. It really, this is when they throw off the trappings of the Heisei series and strike out and do their own thing. And yes, so some of it, it looks like we're going back to the 60s. Just stylistically and just cinematically, I feel like this is a throwback in a lot of ways to a 60s movie. It captures the same feeling and the same kind of magic that was in a lot of the Showa series. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about one of the... I guess you could say more infamous moments in this movie. It's not quite up there with Godzilla's flying dropkick <laughs> from Megalon, but it's one that people love to talk about, and that was his crazy flying body press mm-hmm. on Megagirus. <laughs> it looks kind of odd. I, I don't know if it would have seemed so weird if not for how it was shot. I don't know. What, how did you feel about that? It was always one of my favorite moments in in this fight because it thankfully doesn't involve beams, <laughs> but it it actually is recalling uh, because Kitagawa is the guy that plays Godzilla in this. He's hugely into stunt work and has worked with a lot of people, including Jackie Chan. So this is actually a reference to Toei's Super Sentai. All of the stuff that they got pow- they made into Power Rangers. Yes. And it's actually, it's recalling that stunt work from our Godzilla actor, which I, I went to the panel at G-Fest Yeah, because he was at G-Fest last year, yep. Yeah, I went to his panel and uh, got to hear some of the amazing stories that he told about just all the stuff he's done with stunt work over the years. It's just really awesome. But yeah, that's that's where that comes from. It makes a lot more sense once you see that. Yeah, it it definitely does. <laughs> you know, another thing that's interesting about this? Godzilla kills Megagirus, ends the kaiju fight, and we still have about 10 or 15 minutes of movie left. It, Megagirus is out of the way, but then they had a subplot or two that they needed to wrap up. So that's what the rest of the movie is about. And it doesn't feel like a drag when that goes on. You know, the monster fight is over, but there's still interesting things happening. Which is different because, yeah, like... Like I said, with the having actors do stuff in the third act, we get to tie up our story with humans finishing our story, which is nice. And then we have this rare instance where the humans actually succeed at yeah. defeating Godzilla because yeah, the they, Dimension they Tide their, hits him. Yeah, they get their ten gone. minutes of yeah, they get their ten minutes of glory that we we defeated Godzilla. Yeah, so we get to we get to get our cake and eat it too. Yeah, including a, a celebration scene where. Kudo gets all excited and everyone else starts cheering. And then one guy, you barely even see it because the, the camera is focusing on just everybody getting excited. And one guy slaps Kudo on the shoulder and he's like, oh, wait, my arm is broken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's an old gag, but it's always funny. <laughs> but it's just that's another thing that, that makes this that makes this different. Also, um, we have a nice little bit of uh, symbolism with uh, with uh, Kiriko at the end, because it's after because she's standing on a building looking out at everything and for the first time ever in the movie we actually see her with her hair down yeah so it's like it's saying it's this visual cue to the audience that says she has defeated godzilla she has avenged her co 
now she can go on with her life. Yeah, we have our characters the, returning to normal life. Yeah. yeah, and then for the rest of the movie, I mean, there's only one or two more scenes with her in it, but for the rest of the movie, she's got her hair down. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that was nice. We didn't have to be told. If this was the a Heisei movie. We'd yeah. be told <laughs> yeah. as opposed to shown. Yes. <laughs> it, well, you're talking about you know their 10 minutes of glory. Well, yeah, they get there. And this is when it kind of ends because we have the kid come back, June, mm. and he's at school, and then... Everything starts shaking around him, and then it, the, it, the last shot is him with this scared look on his face, and we hear Godzilla roar. So it's like, oh yeah, I came back, and then that's how the movie ends. Yeah, and we know Godzilla is going to come back, but we even have Godzilla come again at the end of this, just to make sure it's like, okay, audience, we didn't. Don't worry, we didn't eliminate Godzilla. Yeah, uh, it's another good way to, like I said, we get to have our cake and eat it too because we we get to defeat Godzilla, but we don't. I kind of wish that had actually been the last scene of the movie because the way that the, the scene that they end up before they cut to the credits is really weird because it's it's the major and Kudo having a little chat and she's saying we need to bring you back in. And then I think she hits him on the shoulder or whatever. And he's like, oh, my arm. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. And then she freezes the there. That might be an indication that you should wait and see after the credits. Maybe that was sort of looked like it, they were since it froze there that there was something else coming later. Yeah, it was it was a weird stylistic choice, I think. It's just it's very very odd, which is why I'm glad the post credit scene exists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, cuz that's the real ending. Yeah, that, that that is the 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 real ending. Do I have a couple more things I want to bring up? I I just want to get one more quick uh, one more quick negative out of the way because I don't want to end on a sour note. I don't have a lot of major story gripes with this movie, which might surprise a lot of people. But one of them is the the flooding of Tokyo, which just for me just seems to come out of nowhere. And the only thing I can think of is they needed to be flooded so they could have some cool set pieces. If there wasn't flooding, I'd don't know if it would be as much of an impact once once Megaguris comes out of the water. Because we have the whole thing with them being an underwater habitat as they're growing and metamorphosing and all this stuff when they're getting all the energy from Godzilla back into Megaguris. And I was just sort of like, whatever. It's a it, We needed something to have like a disaster that Megaguris causes. I guess it just, it, it probably makes as much sense as the 2014 Godzilla film where he causes a tsunami out of nowhere. Well, that at least has some sort of explanation attached to it. We don't really get one in this. I, I probably would but have there been is in... no explanation. It's a tsunami. Yeah. Well, yeah, it probably would have been a little bit of a needless. I suppose they were looking at it and they just thought, you know, we could explain this, but it's, it distracts from everything else. It's a needless complication. I'm glad that they are moving away from, having to explain every little thing in these movies, like especially in the previous movies that we've been watching lately here with the pseudoscience and all that. Oh, well, as you probably would know, this was caused by that and this was caused by that. And it's like, what? It's Godzilla science. You don't need to explain it to us. We're fine. We don't need to know the scientific explanation for this and that and the other. Like dimension tide flooding. It's the Godzilla world. But an episode on this movie would not be complete if we didn't talk about what might be not only the best sequence in this entire movie, 
but one of the best sequences in the entire franchise, which is Kiriko gets to ride Godzilla. That is epic for me. That she goes over there on her boat and she jumps on his back, straps herself to a spine, and rides him. How many people can actually say that they've done that? I think she's the only one. I don't even think of it as riding. She she just hangs on to him. Like she she's in the water and then he comes out of the water and she hangs on like that and she's he doesn't even know that she's on him. Yeah. Yeah, well, and then generally she... when I understand riding as is that you're like riding a horse and the horse knows that you're on it. Okay. So I don't know if this is riding necessarily. The part of Godzilla that she is holding on to is not CGI. No, it's it, not. It's yeah, it's actually real and there's water all over the place. Mm-hmm. It, it looks really real. Yes. It's it's incredible. It just makes makes her that much more awesome in my mind that she that she did this and it's never replicated again. We no. haven't seen it before. We haven't seen it since. Uh, I've actually nobody's, nobody's touched Godzilla, but her. Yeah, as far yeah. as we know. And interestingly, I have actually heard from some places that this was actually a scene that Tessica didn't want to have. It was Toho who insisted that they keep it. It was in the script, but he didn't want to do it. Hmm. And I'm I'm glad in this case the studio won out because <laughs> I think I think Tezuka said you know it would have been too too pulpy. I guess it's his way of saying too silly. It's like, have you seen the rest of this movie? This is very much a pulp fiction sort of movie. <laughs> it does work though. The all of her her holding on and being splashed with the water, it it really looks good. Yeah. I like it. The only time I could think of where something and this I did think of this when I was watching the movie. The only time I could think of where something like this happened is in one of those nineties Godzilla novels that I've mentioned here and there where there were some people going around in a boat exploring and they find what they think is some sort of bizarre new rock formation and it's actually Godzilla's spine sticking out of the water. Oh. And I remember one of the details on there is it said that apparently Godzilla was sleeping there for so long there were seagulls that had perched on top of the spines and were just hanging out there and had had left their droppings on the spines. Mm. <laughs> so it was a nice little detail, but that's the only time I've heard of anything close to this. That reminds me of the scene in uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, <laughs> where the little girl's like, an island. And, and it ends up being a whale. Yes. <laughs> and the whale eats them and all that. <laughs> One thing that weaves through this story, the idea of secrets and keeping secrets and what happens when you let those secrets out. And this is a nice thing to put into a story that's going to be made into a movie because we get to follow this motif through the entire story and to the culmination of what we get the culmination of that with Sugiura and his secret comes out. Cause that's the most devastating secret of them all. Yes. Not the, not the secret of, Oh, the kid saw the black hole experiment. Cause that's a smaller secret that he keeps from the public. But oh, by the way, there's there's this that exists. He doesn't tell them that. Yeah, you can make the argument that it was Sugiura's secret that actually set a lot of the parts of this movie into motion. Because if he had just come out and said, "Yeah, here's the generator. We need to get rid of this," 
Then Godzilla wouldn't have come to Tokyo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Probably still would have had to deal with Megagiras, but because they would have still gone ahead and made the dimension tied, I'm sure. But there are a lot of secrets that are withheld and then come out throughout this movie. But it's it might re- even recall the way that disasters happen sometimes, and you don't let out the fully devastating effects of that disaster. You don't tell the public about certain things. You know, like the people who are in charge of the information decide to withhold it until it's more convenient for them to let that secret out. And so it, may, it relates to public policy and politics in that way. Speaking of public policy, as someone with a master's degree in public administration, I was totally engaged by the wonderful little backstory with our cut scenes at the beginning of the movie with all of the stuff with energy. It gives us our ultimate, our alternate timeline where the capital has been moved to Osaka and we have the diet building and Osaka castle in the same place in the same area. Then we get our speech, which is from Sugira and he's unveiling the plasma energy system for everybody. And which is nice that you can have something like that in a movie like this, because a lot of people probably wouldn't put a scene like that, that has detail and you wouldn't even bother doing that, but maybe that's why I'm so enthralled by it, but it's a really good scene and it really sets the mood for the movie. Because if you're going to have this whole plasma energy thing, you you need to explain it. That's one thing you do need to explain Because the story is propelled forward by these actions at the beginning of the story. But related to that, it it recalls Japan's struggle for getting energy. Namely also clean energy and also energy independence, which is what our related topic is about. So we'll move on to that. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, we discuss issues that either were brought up by the film directly or were going on in Japan at the time the film was released. So for this one, we chose energy use and energy independence in Japan. Because uh, right in the very opening minutes of this film, we get uh, introduced to this issue. And it's a salient issue throughout the film as well. We also chose the topic of Prime Minister Mori's gaffe which will tell you which one we selected out of that list. It's a long list. (laughs) In our last episode, we discussed the 1999 incident at the Tokai nuclear power plant. And we uh, discussed that for a reason. And it's because even in the following movie, a nuclear power plant attacked, which is the same power plant that the accident occurred at one year before this movie was released. This accident that occurred in 99, though, it's, it helped some to realize that the safety of nuclear energy was a myth. And that basically Japan, this is still a period where Japan was in a false sense of security about the safety of its many nuclear plants. This movie was way ahead of its time, uh, approximately 11 years ahead of its time, because Fukushima occurred 11 years after this. Struggling for energy independence in Japan was not news. It was a fact of everyday life. Which is why this this film is fascinating, because it's 
addressing an issue that was still pertinent at the time because Japan's an island nation they with few of its own natural resources so they have to import their energy they have to import natural gas and uranium and coal and all of these things but we're dealing with a story that it's about the Japanese government shutting down and banning nuclear power for the safety of its citizens. So before Fukushima, about at the time this movie was released, it was approximately 30% of Japan's energy was created by nuclear power sources. It had the third highest number of electricity generating reactors in the world, with 53 right behind the United States and France. Along with this issue of nuclear energy and whether to use it or not, but that also dovetails with the principle of energy security because Japan wants to be able to have energy that is reliable and also clean, which is hard to do and have enough of it at least. Which again is something brought up by this movie (laughs) because we have Sugiura who invents plasma energy, which he says is efficient and it's clean. It's almost like plasma energy is a stand in for hydrogen energy because hydrogen energy is also very hard to build up and run because the it's very extremely clean but the infrastructure has to be there for hydrogen energy to, to work yes so it's <laughs> heavy amount of money uh, inputted into this in order to get hydrogen energy it's going to take a couple of decades there really aren't all that many great alternatives for Japan right now because nuclear was such a good option because it was well at least clean comparatively Coal is abundant, and it's very cheap, but the level of pollution is very high. Nuclear energy is guaranteed at some point there's going to be something wrong that happens. And what happened, you just have to deal with it when it does. But that's really what this movie did, was it declared the inevitability of nuclear power not working out for Japan. Hydrogen energy takes up a lot of space and is also highly flammable which if you have hydrogen energy in an urban setting, that is one thing you have to be concerned with. There's also wind and solar energy as well as hydroelectric energy. It is clean, but it is not necessarily reliable in that it doesn't necessarily have a constant energy output. Currently, though, Japan's go-to alternative clean energy source is geothermal energy, especially since Fukushima. Japan has 18 geothermal plants and the world's third largest geothermal reserves. And METI has been looking into over 40 possible locations for more geothermal plants. And that includes the ocean floor, which is what they're calling hydrothermal energy. And so that's another, like they're looking for hydrothermal deposits on the seafloor. So that's yet another. They're also doing exploration for oil and natural gas deposits in the ocean as well in order to do offshore drilling. Basically, Japan is trying anything and everything to try to get energy. Offshore wind farms is another uh, thing that they're looking into as well, as a number of countries are looking into, including China and the United States. Regarding solar energy, there is a solar project going on now to create photovoltaic cells in a solar project in Kyushu, and that is being helped with uh, GE Energy, uh, part of General Electric um, Financial Services that are uh, working on that project 
a Chinese firm is also involved in creating photovoltaic modules for that solar farm. Regarding coal, power companies in Japan have plans to build roughly 40 new coal-fired thermal power plants. So coal is huge part of their uh, anticipated future energy use. In fact, in 2010, Japan imported 187 megatons of coal, and that was 20%, 20% of the world's total coal imports just in Japan. And the coal is coming from countries like Indonesia and uh, Russia and basically anywhere that they can get it because there's a huge amount of coal that is necessary. It is anticipated that the total supply of out of the total supply of energy by 2030 that coal will make as much as 38% of that energy mix by then, which is extremely high. As of 2016, the share of nuclear power in the electricity supply of Japan stands at 2%. This is why Japan is investing so much money in finding renewable energy resources. Currently, 10% of its energy comes from renewables, and the fourth strategic energy plan has set a goal of increasing it to 24% by 2030. And over the next decade or so, Japan is planning on investing 700 billion, billion with a B, dollars, not yen, yeah, into renewable energy sources. It is also forecast that nuclear power will be about 10% of Japan's electricity in 2030. And that was done from an independent research institute. And yet the government's energy mix target for nuclear is more than twice that. Power plants right now, the nuclear power plants, there are a lot of court cases right now about whether to turn them on or not. There are a lot of people who, in the public in Japan who are extremely wary of turning on any of these reactors. Again, there are only a few of them back on as the at the time that we are creating this episode. The government anticipates turning on a bunch of them, and it probably won't reach near what it what it was before Fukushima, but the safety standards at the nuclear power plants have been raised considerably. But the the problem is is that are you ever going to get public confidence back in the nuclear energy industry in Japan? Probably not. You, what you have to understand is this is this is quite a catch twenty two for Japan. On one hand, nuclear power allowed them to be able to generate their own electricity and they didn't have to worry about importing anything. On the other hand, Japan is a disaster-prone country, and these power plants, as Fukushima demonstrated, are very vulnerable to such disasters. Because the nuclear power plants need to be very near a water source, nearly all of these nuclear power plants in Japan are situated in bays or somewhere on the shore, which Fukushima was, and Tokai also got damage from the, from the tsunami in 2011, but it did not get damaged enough. But the thing is, disasters happen. 9.0 earthquakes happen. Are you ever going to be able to protect yourself enough? The idea of doubting that this will ever be safe is very common belief in Japan. At this time, there are still 
lots of parts of the Fukushima affected area that are either not safe to return, return to, or the evacuation orders are still being rescinded of, of various areas. Another side of this catch-22 is Japan's energy self-sufficiency was at 19.9% in 2010. So we're talking a year before Fukushima. And it has dropped to 6% as of 2014. This ranks Japan as 33rd in the world for energy self-sufficiency. The incredibly small country Luxembourg is 34th. So that should tell you something. Because of their heavy reliance on imported energy, it makes them vulnerable to the influence of international situations. As well as fluctuations in the price of energy, specifically oil and natural gas. Japan is the largest importer of liquid natural gas in the world. And quite a lot of that comes from the United States. And part of it is from uh, fracking. Yeah, actually, in uh, in 2010, so this these numbers are a little out of date, but uh, especially since this is before Fukushima, Japan imported 99 billion cubic meters of natural gas, and that was 12.1% of the world's gas imports at the time. It's only, as Brian said, it's only gone up since then. One year after this movie came out, Koizumi was elected to be prime minister of Japan. He was prime minister from 01 to 05. He has actually bucked the trend that is prevalent in the government and the Liberal Democratic Party because they're, the government and the LDP's position is that they want to restart the nuclear power plants. And the public at large, is there are a lot, they have a lot of problems with that. However, former Prime Minister Koizumi is actually one of the biggest figures in the anti-nuclear movement now, and he is advocating that none of the nuclear power plants should be in operation. We will be talking a lot more about Prime Minister Koizumi in our next episode for Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters All Out Attack 2001. <laughs> Interestingly, unlike most industrialized countries, Japan has two national grids instead of a unified grid, one in the east and one in the west. Although the outlets in both grids are 100 volts, the, the, they operate on different frequencies. It's 60 hertz in Western Japan, and it's 50 hertz in Eastern Japan. And so there are these conversion stations that are throughout Japan, and that is what enables them to, to get power, if necessary, to get power from one grid to the other. And so these are very crucial locations for these converter stations. As a consequence of the Fukushima disaster, efforts have been made to liberalize the electricity supply market. One was the, what's called the feed-in tariff scheme, which encouraged utilities and companies to invest and purchase renewable energy sources. METI has encouraged this by setting prices on renewables. And small businesses can now select from 250 companies selling electricity and wholesale electricity trading can now take place. In other words... It deregulated power companies so consumers can get their electricity from the lowest bidder. Yes, deregulation leads to more companies competing with each other, which leads to a lower price. Which is much different than how it is in most places, which have regional monopolies when it comes to power companies. Over the years, because of various energy crises, as well as uh, the energy crunch that Fukushima put Japan in, Japan has gotten much better and has gotten extremely good 
at energy conservation and being able to do more with less. And this in directly is able to cut down on the amount of energy that Japan has to use every day. And so it's the process of targeting certain industries and saying, what can you, what can this industry do to reduce consumption and what can that industry do? And so it's a, it's a very meticulous process that is a, involves a lot of government intervention. Since we mentioned uh, Prime Minister Koizumi a little bit, let's talk a little bit about his immediate predecessor, Yoshiro Mori, who was prime minister from 2000 to 2001. He was a rather unpopular fellow, and he's better remembered for his many, many gaffes and social faux pas. He was so unpopular that his approval ratings dropped to the single digits and he was forced to resign, which paved the way for Koizumi to get elected. And he was described as having, quote, the heart of a flea and the brain of a shark. He's one of the prime ministers that the media just had a field day with because of his all of his undiplomatic and uh, other uh, comments and behaviors. So when I introduced this topic both times, I, I called this topic Maury's Gaff, singular. But there, uh, there are lots of gaffes, but we're, we're going to see which one is the gaff. Was it the time he made a joke about his 1969 election where he said, When I was greeting farmers from my car, they all went into their homes. I felt like I had AIDS. No, not that one. How about the time when he was talking about the Y2K problem in the United States and he said that, quote, when there is a blackout, the murderers always come out. It's that type of society. Well, that's pretty bad. Uh, not that one. How about the time he went, he attended the funeral of his predecessor and he, f and he forgot to clap and bow, which is a traditional Japanese funeral rite, but other world leaders, including President Bill Clinton, remembered to do that? Well, that's embarrassing, not that. How about when, during the June 2000 election, he found that half the voters were still undecided, and he told the newspaper they could, quote, stay in bed for the day? Not that one either. How about the time that magazine got pictures of him having a drink in an Osaka bar with a high-ranking Yakuza? Well, that's really embarrassing. Uh, no, not that either. How about when... He didn't stop his golf game after he was told that the USS Greenville accidentally hit a Japanese fishing boat and killed nine people. Wow, that looks really bad. Not that one either. I bet I know what it is. It was at the G8 summit in 2000, and he was meeting President Bill Clinton, and he was supposed to say, how are you? But instead, he said, who are you? And then Bill Clinton answered by saying, well, I'm Hillary Clinton's husband. And then Omori said, me too. That actually didn't even happen. Well, Brian, I give up. What was it? Well, the bad one was when he was around a group of Shinto people, and he described Japan a, as a nation of deities with the emperor at its center. That actually was a controversial thing to say, because it invoked the whole thing about the emperor being a, a divinity or at least descended from divinity, meaning the, uh, the sun God, uh, and, and all that. And that, that had been effectively ended after the war. He also used the term Kokutai, which that is a term for the unity of Japan under the divine emperor. And that was also hearkening back to 
the uh, pre-occupation days when, when the emperor was considered divine. And so th- this was not only bad to say, but it was very controversial in a lot of circles in Japan, just because this was one of the sort of taboos that that really doesn't um, get discussed very much anymore, especially by prime ministers. But this, uh, Mori was uh, quite gaff-prone, and he was the leader of the Liberal Democratic Party before he became prime minister, which a lot of times is a cabinet member that gets tapped to be the next prime minister. But instead, he was tapped to be prime minister and kept the same cabinet that his predecessor, Obuchi, had. Man, I bet Japanese late-night talk show hosts always had plenty of material when he was prime minister. He also faced a vote of no confidence, and so that he was... Uh, very unpopular even among his own party because they figured he was probably doing quite a bit of damage uh, to them. And so the the reason why uh, Koizumi was considered such a a different figure and and sort of a breath of fresh air, especially at the beginning, uh, was because of this, uh, of Mori and a couple of his predecessors that they didn't have such a great time as prime minister. Um, Koizumi would be prime minister for a number of years, which uh, staying on as prime minister that long, as, as well as Abe staying on that long as, as we speak right now. But those are um, more of an anomaly than the norm. Besides Prime Minister Mori and his gaffes, there was another interesting thing that occurred in 2000, and that was when the United States trade deficit to China became larger than its trade deficit to Japan for the first time ever which that was a harbinger of things to come uh, regarding China's rise as a major trading power and the increasing influence of China. Hmm. But before we close out, hit us with those economic figures for this year. It's a higher figure than we've had lately. Uh, We have a growth of 2.25%. And this was uh, better than the two previous years because those were both negative uh, GDP growth. And so we uh, got out of the recession. And however, we are still in the officially sanctioned lost decade uh, for Japan, though. Small growth is better than no growth. Well, I think that just about wraps things up for us here at Kaiju Vision Radio. Next week, we will be discussing one of those standout Millennium Series movies. And that will be Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters All Out Attack. Wow, what a one, what a mouthful of a title. <laughs> I love it. I love these long titles. Nobody does it anymore. Yeah, and as we'll talk about in the in next week's episode, there's a bit of a special connection for us to this movie. I'll be very much looking forward to this one. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. And I'm Brian Churchill, and I edited this podcast. Sayonara, 